بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وخاتم النبيين وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين ومن تبعهم بإحسان ودعا بدعوتهم واستنى بسنتهم واقتدى بهديهم إلى يوم الدين وبعد فقد قال الله سبحانه وتعالى في محكم تنزيله بعد أن أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ولهن مثل الذي عليهن بالمعروف وللرجال عليهن درجة صدق الله العظيم My dear respected brothers and sisters, respected elders, dear young friends and students Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Indeed, in this day and age this is a very very important topic for which we have gathered tonight to listen to and to benefit from, insha'Allah, and to clarify our understanding, and to remove and insha'Allah hopefully dispel some confusion that might be arising in our minds from the propaganda that we are facing continuously, from the enemies of Islam, both external and internal, those who openly declare themselves to be disbelievers, and those who under the guise of Islam are also enemies of Islam, the so-called progressive Muslims. And that is, what is the status of women in Islam? What is the lofty status that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has granted women? What are their rights? And at the same time, what are their responsibilities? Along with rights, this is the nature of our existence that we are all undergoing a trial and a test in this world. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has granted definite rights and also Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given responsibilities. So what are the rights of women in Islam? What are the responsibilities of women in Islam? What is the role that women have in Islam? And it is hoped that by recognition of these responsibilities and these rights, we'll realize that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has provided us this deen as a deen of mercy. He has provided Rasulullah, has sent Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as a prophet of mercy. وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا I have not sent you but as a source of mercy for all the worlds. He was not a source of mercy for the men only. It's not rahmatan lil rijal. It's rahmatan lil alameen. He was a source of mercy for everyone, everything in existence. And the sad fact is that throughout history, we have seen that the rights of women have been undermined in the West where women are so-called liberated, they are also being exploited and some places in the East by those who claim to be Muslims unfortunately and those who are not Muslims as well they are also undermining the rights of women so this is indeed a very tragic reality that we have to awaken to and we have to correct our own behavior and not hesitate in speaking out against. First thing that we have to realize is that roughly if we say that women constitute half of society but their effect is much larger and greater than their numbers because of the direct influence 
they have on their children as well as on men. As we see in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us different stories of families. And we see that when the mother was righteous or the one who was raising up, both the biological mother, Umm Musa, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about her iman, her tawakkul, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَوَحَيْنَا إِلَىٰ أُمِّ مُوسَىٰ أَنْ That we um, inspired the mother of Musa alayhi salam that continue to suckle your baby. فَإِذَا خِفْتَ عَلَيْهِ When you are afraid, when you hear the guards approaching the door coming to snatch the baby from you, to take him to his death, as was the uh, commandment and the order from Fir'aun, فَأَلْقِيهِ فِي الْيَمْ Then throw your baby into the ocean, into the river, into the water. وَلَا تَخَافِي وَلَا تَحْزَنِي Do not fear, do not grieve. إِنَّا رَادُوهُ إِلَيْكَ We will return him back to you. وَجَاعِلُوهُ مِنَ الْمُرْسَلِينَ We will make him a prophet. So imagine the tawakkul that she had, the trust she had, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, she threw the baby in the water. And later on, of course, we know he was raised by a very righteous woman. Athiya alayha salam. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa has given her the title in which he mentioned khayru nisa'il alameen arba'un. There are four women who are the greatest women of all times. And he started with her name, Imra'atu Fir'aun. So she saw the baby, and we do not have time to go into that story. But we see that she actually convinced her husband Fir'aun to raise up the baby infant, Musa alayhi salam. لا تقتلوه She said, do not kill him. قُرَّةُ عَيْنِي لِي وَلَكِ He'll be the coolness of my eyes and your eyes. He certainly was the coolness of her eyes and definitely not of Fir'aun's eyes. So this Musa who was raised by this woman, the fact that the house that he was raised in, the male figure was Fir'aun, did not affect his upbringing. Rather, he gained the taqwa and the God-fearingness nature and he had the tarbiyah of Athiya. And that played a role in him fashioning him to become a prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the fact that the father was one of the worst enemies, or the foster father, we would say, is the worst enemies of Allah, did not affect his upbringing. On the other hand, we have the example of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَضَرَبَ اللَّهُ مَثَلًا لِلَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا إِمْرَأَةَ نُوحُ وَمْرَأَةَ لُوتُ Allah gives the example of the disbelieving, for the disbelieving woman, the wife of Nuh and the wife of Lut. So here is a reverse scenario. The father is a prophet of Allah, a Nabi of Allah, a Rasul of Allah, one of the Ulul Azam, the top highest ranking prophets. Yet his wife, Nuh al-Islam's wife, is a disbeliever. So we see the son is following the footsteps, not of his great Jalil al-Qadr, lofty status father, who bears a lofty status, his noble father, but rather he's following the footsteps of his mother. Ya Nuh al-Islam is saying to his son, come join us, don't be with the kafirin, don't be with the khasirin, with the losers, and those who are going to destruction, come upon to the ship at the time of the flood. And what does the son say? Kana'an, qala sa'awi ila jabalin ya'asimuni min al-ma. No, I will go to the mountain, I will be saved from the flood. وَحَالَ بَيْنَهُمُ الْمَوْجُهُ كَانَ مِنَ الْمُغْرَقِينَ A great wave overcome, overcame him, came between the father and the son, and he drowned. So this is the evil outcome. When the mother was in mushrika, was not believing, then the son also followed her footsteps. So that is why the position of woman 
is far greater than their numbers. They affect their husbands. They affect their children. And if the proper tarbiyah is made of the woman and they understand their role, they understand their responsibilities and the rights that they have as well, and they are steadfast and strong in their belief, then this will have a great effect on the entire society. And this is what the enemies of Islam are also aware of. The pivotal role of women and that they are the cornerstone of the society. They are what makes and breaks the families. That is why so much effort is being done to confuse them, confuse our mothers and sisters and our daughters and create doubts in their hearts against our deen. So, let us look and see where are, what is the status that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran and Rasulullah in the hadith have given women. Number one, we see the woman as a human being. We have to come from this baseline. Because why are we even establishing the fact that she is a human being? This might be considered as restating the obvious. Unfortunately, from the perspective of history, this was not an obvious fact. Centuries after Rasulullah there was a council of cardinals and bishops in Europe in the Middle Ages. They had a conference in which they were trying to determine whether a woman has a soul or not. So is a woman even a human being or she is some lowly creature? So there have been lots of people throughout history who have denied even the humanity of women. And it is just a type of lower form of creation who has been created for the service of man. Na'udhu Billah, Islam came of course and eradicated this false philosophy. The woman's dignity and humanity were restored. And Islam confirmed that she has the capacity to carry out the commands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala just like men. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in numerous ayat mentions that men and women, both of you are the creation of Allah. You are brothers and sisters. You are from the children of Adam and Hawa. Both are branches of a single tree. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the first ayah of Surah An-Nisa, He says, Ya ayuhan nas, Ittaqu rabbakumulladhi khalaqakum min nafsin wahida. Fear your Lord, inculcate taqwa in your life. That Rabb who has created you from one soul, Adam. وَجَعَلَ minha zawjaha. And from Adam He created Hawa. وَبَثَّ مِنْهُمَا رِجَالًا كَثِيرًا وَنِسَاءً And from the union of both Adam and Hawa, He created and spread out throughout the world many men and women. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala here says that men and women, both you have come from Adam and Hawa. Likewise, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent Adam alayhi salam and Hawa alayhi salam into Jannah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave the command to both. And he said that you can stay in this Jannah and enjoy the fruits of this Jannah. And when he gave the prohibition, he gave it to both. وَلَا تَقْرَبَا هَذِي شَجَرَةً Both of you do not come near unto this tree. فَتَكُونَا مِنَ الظَّالِمِينَ Otherwise you will be one of the transgressors. So this is a command of the Sharia, the order of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, like it was for Adam alayhi salam, it was for Hawa alayhi salam as well. And here the Quranic story diverges from the biblical account. And the biblical account unfortunately is so common, 
so pervasive that even many Muslims fall into the same belief. The biblical story is that it was Hawa who instigated Adam and confused him and misled him. Whereas the Quran never says that. The Quran says, That it was Shaytan who confused both of them. It was Shaytan who misguided both of them. So this is the Christian perspective that the reason we are here in this world and the reason that the, the entire human race has been the damnation of the human race is because of the sin of Hawa. She is the main culprit, the first sinner, the one who caused the downfall of Adam and of all of the children of Adam. So this is not something from the Quran. The Quran says that both of them were uh, shaitan whispered in, in both of their ears. In fact, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about one of them committing a sin, it is not Hawa, it's rather Adam. Allah speaks in the singular tense. If he speaks about the sin committed in the singular tense, he's not referring to Hawa, he's referring to Adam alayhi salam. That we had given a direct command to Adam alayhi salam not to eat from the tree, but he forgot. And we did not find in him determination. Azma, this is in the Quran. In Surah Taha as well, Allah mentions this. So, this type of um, ideology that women are the source of evil is not only found in the Christian tradition, but in other traditions we find. Even unfortunately when we had to learn in the Greek mythology in school. So, they also have this concept that in the beginning of time, the gods were there and they created this world and it was a very happy and enjoyable place. And they had given a prohibition that there is a box, this box, this case, you should not open this box. And if you open this box, there will be a lot of troubles. But it was a woman, Pandora, she is the one who opened that box, the Pandora's box, and all of the miseries, all the calamities, and all the sicknesses, they came out from that box and populated the earth. Again, blaming the woman. Of course, this is not an Islamic perspective. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says that you are brothers and sisters, you are full human beings, equal human beings. And He speaks about this equality. One key word that we want to focus on tonight and remember is that men and women in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are equal. And we will say that without any hesitation. But at the same time, this is not the end of the sentence. Men and women are equal in the eyes of Allah, but are not identical. They are not identical. And this has many repercussions. If you look at this statement, they are equal in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but they are definitely not identical. As far as equality, what, is we, what do we mean when we say they are equal? Then we can talk about how they are not identical. How are they equal? This is an example of this is the ayah that was revealed upon the request of the woman. Asma radiallahu anha came to Rasulullah sallallahu and requested and said, Ya Rasulullah, I have been sent as a spokeswoman, as a spokeswoman to Rasulullah sallallahu on behalf of the woman. They had a meeting and the woman sent me to represent them and they had this question. And the question they have is that what sin are we committing and what wrongdoing are we, do, uh, are we involved in? Perhaps because of that sin, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
maybe is not pleased with us and that is why he does not directly address us in the Quran he addresses the men directly in the Quran and under the injunction for the men we are also bracketed and included but we do not find he is directly addressing us separately so Rasulullah did not have an answer note the, kind of, uh, the nature of her question that she was representing the woman was not an objection against Allah or an objection against the style of Allah in the Quran rather looking to the, at the fall within themselves they said what sin are we committing why is it that Allah is displeased with us that he is not revealing an, an order of, or he's not addressing us directly in the Quran you know the Quran says ya amanu in the translations we, we read oh those who believe but if you want to be very particular and technical about it then alladhina amanu are the male tenses and within that it includes the woman in the Arabic language the female tense would be ya ayyuhallati amanna so everyone is over here mashallah reads the Quran is at least familiar enough with the Quran that you know that the Quran is filled with ya ayyuhalladhina amanu ya ayyuhalladhina amanu this ya ayyuhalladhina amanu that but the Quran does not have ya ayyuhallati amanna or those women who believe it's, only, it's always or those who believe we translate it as those or those who believe but it actually means or those men who believe from the gender the, that is the tense that is used that is the wording that is used so Rasulullah he did not have an answer directly and this is one of the proofs of revelation that he did not come up with things on the spur of the moment you know, just to save face he didn't say anything he said I have to wait to see what my Lord will reveal unto me and sure enough Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the ayat, Surah Al-Ahzab, Surah 33, Ayah 35. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not say, you know, be quiet for this objection or suppress them. Rather Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we can see, and this is an encouragement for the women, that how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves the men and loves the women. Just like He loves the men, He loves the women equally. He, was, he took their request into consideration and revealed this ayah and other ayats in the Quran. Ayah 35 starts In the Muslimina wal Muslimat, wal Mu'minina wal Mu'minat, wal Qanitina wal Qanitat, wal Sadiqina wal Sadiqat, wal Sabirina wal Sabirat, wal Khashi'ina wal Khashi'at, wal Mutasadiqina wal Mutasadiqat, wal Sa'imina wal Sa'imat, wal Hafidina Furujahum wal Hafidat, wal Zakirina Allah Kathira wal Zakirat. In this ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made it clear by mentioning not one or two times, but ten times. He mentioned ten attributes of men and bracketed it with ten attributes of women. Verily, those who are Muslim men and Muslim women, those who have iman, whether male or female, those who submit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, whether male or female, and there are those who make ibadah, whether male or female. Those who are truthful, whether male or female. Those who have patience, sabr, whether male or female. Those who fear Allah, whether male or female. Wal mutasaddiqeen, those who give sadaqah, charity, whether male or female. Wasa'imina, wasa'imat, those who fast, whether male or female. Wal hafidina furujahum, wal hafidat, those who guard their private parts, whether male or female. This is not referring to the hips class. Hafidat are mentioned in the Quran. This is referring to guarding the private parts. Those who are chaste, male or female. 
So be careful about that. وَالذَّاكِرِينَ اللَّهَ كَثِيرًا وَالذَّاكِرَاتِ In those who remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, whether male or female. For both of them, for all of them, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has one conclusion. أَعَدَّ اللَّهُ لَهُمْ مَغْفِرَةً Allah has prepared for them forgiveness. وَأَجْرًا عَظِيمًا In a great reward. So those who do good, whether male or female, will be rewarded. Those who sin, whether male or female, can be punished. This is the system of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And with regards to social responsibilities, these are their own ibadat. With regards to interacting with others, what are the responsibilities as being a member of a community? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah 9, Ayah 71. It says, Al-Mu'minuna wal-Mu'minat ba'dhum awliya'u ba'd. The believing men and the believing women, they are supporters of one another. How are these awliya over here means helpers and supporters and friends and protectors. They are those who invite towards good and they forbid from evil. This is the responsibility of men, this is the responsibility of women. They establish salah, they give the zakah, they obey Allah and the Rasul. So, starting from the beginning, if it was not Hawa who made the mistake, it was both made a mistake, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgave both. And even if it was her mistake, then to transmit that fault to all of her daughters, this is against the Quranic principle. There is no original sin that we have like the Christians believe in. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Tilka ummatun qad khalat, laha ma kasabat wa lakum ma kasabtum. Previous nations passed, if they did good, they got the reward, you will not receive it. If they did wrong, they will receive the sin, you will not receive it. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if you do good deeds, لا أضيعوا عمل عامل منكم من ذكر أو أنثى I will not allow your good deeds to go waste whether you are male or whether you are female Surah 3, 195 Likewise Allah Ta'ala says من عمل صالحا Whoever does righteous deeds And he makes it clear من ذكر أو أنثى He goes out of his way to say whether male or female Allah says, He promises them, فَلَنُحِيَنَّهُ حَيَاتًا طَيِّبًا I'll grant them a beautiful life, a life of contentment and happiness and respect. So this is the principle. Likewise, when it comes now to financial matters, when it comes to financial matters, what was the condition? That far from being in a position to own property, uh, she herself, the woman herself, was regarded as property. Na'udhu Billah. And that is why it is important that we see the status of women prior to Islam as a baseline to see what Islam brought for women. So she herself was regarded as property. She did not have any right to own anything. When a man would die, then all of his ca camels would go into possession of his sons. All of his cattle would go into the possession of his sons. If he had fields, his crops would go into the possession of his sons. If he had gold and silver, his children would inherit that. Just like they would inherit his property, they would inherit their, the wives as well. And the wives were not limited to four, any ten wives, twenty wives, as number of, uh, as the, the number of wives the father had, all of those would be given to the son. Na'udhu Billah. And that is why this was declared haram in the Qur'an. Besides the biological mother, other women the father married were transmitted to the son. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَا تَنْكِحُوا مَا نَكَحَ آبَاؤُكُمْ مِنَ النِّسَاءِ You may never marry any woman that your father ever married. 
she is your mother, you have to honor her. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran, He gives the woman the right of ownership, the right of inheritance, and she can spend her money as she wishes within the halal parameters, of course. She can buy, she can rent, she can donate, she can lend, she can allocate property for religious charitable purposes. She can give sadaqah, she can enter into contracts. These are all permissible for women in our team. And these were not granted to her before Islam. Moving on, we see the woman's right to education is guaranteed in our deen or learning. In fact, it's not only a right, but it's an obligation. Rasulullah said, Talabul ilmi faridatun ala kulli muslimin. That learning, knowledge is an obligation on every Muslim, whether male or female. And just like the male has to learn the knowledge of deen, she is also responsible to learn. Socially, she can enter into contracts. She can. She can. She is responsible for amr bil ma'roof and nahi anil munkar. There are some examples from the stories of Rasulullah from the life of Rasulullah where he honored the contract given by a woman. One such example is Ummahani bint Abi Talib. On the day of the conquest of Makkah, on the day of Fatih Makkah, she gave aman and she said that I give security to the mushrik father-in-law that she had. And her brother came and wanted to kill him as he was a mushrik who came out on the day of the conquest of Makkah. And she came to Rasulullah and complained and she said, my brother is insisting on killing my refugee, the one I have granted refuge, Ibn Hubayrah. Rasulullah replied, we are going to confer asylum on whoever you give refuge to. So he honored the aman that was granted by this woman, Ummahani radiallahu ta'ala anha. This is narrated by Bukhari and Muslim. So this is the fact that women are equal to men. But at the same time, we also mention that they are not identical. So this is a fact, it's an undeniable fact that physically men are different than women. And psychologically men are different from women. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who is the creator of men and women, He recognizes the differences that He has created in His creation. And he has given different roles. So we are living in such a time when those roles are getting more and more blurred. And those distinctions are, are, being, are vanishing. And that is where there is so much confusion coming in society. A very simple example that I have given multiple times in my classes. Those of you who have come to the Sunday classes might have recalled this example. But majority of the people are new here. It is a very simple example given by one of my teachers, and I love it for its simplicity. It's very simple, so simple that you can explain to your kindergarten children, first grade children, they can appreciate this example. But it is still at the same time very profound. He gives an example that if there is a father, he has one daughter and one son. And he notices that it's getting colder, the weather is getting colder, and his daughter, her Sweater from last year, last year's winter is getting tight or is torn. She needs a new sweater. And he realizes his son is growing. His shoes are tight. He needs new shoes. So he takes his son and his daughter, both 
to the Walmart, for example, over here. We would give the example of Walmart. And he goes and buys a sweater for his daughter, which is $50. And he buys shoes for his son, which are $50. They're actually both $50. Same money for both. The same price for both. And then he comes up to the cashier, the sales lady at the, who's working on the checkout counter. And he says that these are the shoes that I bought for my son. And he gives it to her to ring it. And then he says, this is the sweater for my daughter. So would it be logical for her to make an objection that this is gross injustice and this is not fair that you bought shoes for your son and you did not buy shoes for your daughter? You bought a sweater for your daughter? Why didn't you also buy shoes for your daughter? Would she be able to make such an objection? When they both cost $50, there is no way that that objection would hold any weight or that our objection would arise logically in the first place. Because of the simple reason that the caring, loving father who loves both his son and his daughter, he bought what each one needed, what each one required. So this is an example that the men and women are equal in the eyes of Allah and the system of jaza, whether thawab or iqab, whether reward or punishment is equal in the eyes of Allah. A male is not superior to a female because of being a male, nor vice versa would a female be superior to a male. The more superior in the eyes of Allah is the one who is more taqwa, who has more taqwa. Inna akramakum Verily the most honorable amongst you in the eyes of Allah is not rijalakum, your men. It is those who fear Allah the most. That woman who fears Allah is much more beloved to Allah and loftier. In the, she has a loftier status in the eyes of Allah than the male who disbelieves in Allah. What is the position of Athiya versus Fir'aun? Husband and wife, one pair. They live together as husband and wife, king and queen. One is the enemy of Allah, one is the beloved of Allah. One believed in Allah, one disbelieved in Allah. So, the woman, they have to remove this confusion or any doubt in their hearts and minds that men are superior to us or have it easier than us. At the end of the day, you have to believe that in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You have to come to terms in, inwardly in your heart and mind that you believe in Allah or not. Do you love Allah or not? And do you not believe that Allah loves you or not? And that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not commit any oppression. Inna Allah la yadhlimun nasa shayan. Nas includes men and women. Allah does not commit any zulm and any oppression on anyone. So we must study, we must do investi- we must investigate. What we must investigate? We must investigate whether this practice is actually in the deen or not. Because one of the f- first lessons we teach a new convert, after all the takbir Allah Akbar, takbir Allah Akbar, and shaking hands, and hugging and getting excited that someone has converted. One of the first lessons we teach him, and if we don't teach him, then he and himself learns the hard way, is the distinction between Islam and Muslims. The unfortunate reality, there is a huge distinction between Islam and Muslims. So all of the behavior of Muslims is not according to to Islam. There are many uh, acts of oppression Muslims are committing. Islam is not to blame. So we have to make investigation. Women should make an investigation. Uh, This type of practice that is occurring. 
And you have the right to, rather you have obligation to make the investigation. Is this a true Islamic practice or not? After it is established that it is Islamic practice, then we have to submit. And we have to realize that this is, there is no oppression. And if it's an un-Islamic practice, then we have to speak out against it. So, this is where there is a huge confusion. Because there are many conferences uh, for the advancement of women. And many different seminars. And many different movements. And non-governmental organizations. And governmental organizations. And United Nations. And aid agencies. And Christian agencies. And overtly and covertly different types of agencies working throughout the Muslim world and within the West themselves. With an agenda for helping women. So it becomes confusing. If there is a program against something called, for example, honor killing. Of course, that's barbaric activity. Honor killing is a type of jahiliya practice. Where the men of a particular tribe or family, the family members themselves, they feel a woman has dishonored their tribe. Most of the time it involves illicit uh, promiscuous activity with a male from another tribe or another village that is not approved of by this tribe, of the woman's tribe. So this happens in villages in different places where ignorance is rampant. Then they will say she has, honored, she has dishonored us, our family. So the males get together and they become the executioner and they themselves kill the woman. They kill their own daughter or kill their own sister, kill their own cousin. Many times they actually get the younger minors involved in the, to do the criminal act so that they, they don't have to go to jail or they'll be easier and if they reach court because they'll be juveniles so they soil the hands of these juveniles with the crime of killing the woman in their own family so these types of honor killings so-called honor killings so-called there's no honor in that so if there is an activity by these people against honor killings then we can join them we'll say this is haram this is against our deen against for example Mutilation of, uh, of uh, female bodies that take place. There is circumcision for males in our deen. But there is no circumcision for females. So this is an African practice. This does not happen in the subcontinent. But this happens in Africa. So it happens in sub-Saharan Africa, in non-Muslim countries. And at the same time, this practice of female genital uh, uh, cutting and harming them, mutilation... This practice occurs even by in Egypt, in Muslim countries, in Sudan, which is a Muslim country. So we will say that this is haram, this is not part of our deen, to make women undergo this type of unhygienic and hurtful procedure that causes them pain. But at the same time, there are campaigns against hijab, that the woman who is wearing hijab, she is now being oppressed. She is under oppression. And there are so many different bodies working actively against the hijab. When they want to interview a woman and to get her perspective about Islam, the New York Times reporter or the Los Angeles Times reporter, they will not go to the local masjid and find those sisters who left a life of nakedness and nudity and took the shahada and wearing the hijab and go and ask them that what made you leave the so-called free life and liberated life of, of a western woman and adopt all of these stringent commandments of hijab etc as a muslim woman the interviews of these muslim women will only be in the muslim magazines and muslim channels perhaps but never by the mainstream media unless of course this muslim convert becomes an extremist and commits some atrocious crimes and joins some kharji movement 
which we have already spoken about, has nothing to do with our deen, and they're out killing people, of course, then she becomes an active uh, media interest. Otherwise, all of those women who are accepting Islam and leading lives as good Muslim women, they're never bothered by any reporters knocking on their door. Rather, the reporter will go to someone who calls himself a Muslim and who has been subjugated to un-Islamic practices of oppression in a Muslim land and will hear the story of how they are being. Their rights have been violated by Islam. And this type of attitude was more apparent before and is now is more, is hidden. How is it apparent? We see, for example, in the early 20th century, the Rockefeller Foundation from New York sent Ruth Francis Woodsmall uh, on a mission, 18-month trip to the entire Muslim world. And what was her mission? Study the changing state of Muslim women under the influence of colonial rule. So come back with the report how successful we are in corrupting the Muslim women. She published a voluminous report and by, it was published by the American University of Beirut in 1936. It's a very telling report. She traveled to Turkey, Syria, Egypt, Palestine, Transjordan, Iraq, Iran, and India. And she put all her subjects under the microscope, searching for all signs of westernization, and giving a report how far we have been successful in so-called advancement in progress. And I quote her, she says, Undoubtedly, undoubtedly the barometer of social change in the Muslim world is the hijab. The barometer to see how much progress we have made is the hijab. And so she studied it in her report in great detail, noting the designs, the material sizes, and the practices of those who are wearing it throughout the Muslim lands. And she cheering those who are fighting to eradicate this greatest evil of all evils. Um, so she actually praises with glowing words Mustafa Kamal Pasha, of course we know who abolished the Islamic Khilafat and was the Murtad apostate ruler of Turkey who banished the wheel along with Islamic headgear and he made such harsh rules that all those women who wear the hijab who insist on wearing the hijab are debarred from voting they cannot vote and she said she completely was for this rule she said it's very logical and this is a regulation that should be celebrated um, likewise in Iran on 8th January 1936 the Majesty Shah Riza Palvi he, he declared this is the day of the emancipation and the freedom of women so there was compulsory unveiling in all schools this is before of course Khomeini and no veiled woman could receive treatment in Iran at a public clinic or ride in a public conveyance. If you're wearing hijab, you cannot be treated in a, cl in a clinic. So what did our uh, investigator, Woodsmall, what did she believe about this denial of basic human rights for women on the basis of religious observances? She said, these are quote, these regulations will doubtless for a time work genuine hardship on conservative Muslim women, but eventually their conservation, conservativeness will doubtless be overcome. So in the long run, it's a good thing, it's fine, we have to go through this hardship of not allowing veiled women to be treated in hospitals or to even have a, a conveyance likewise. Um, 
One entry in her book reports, a former young Muslim leader of Beirut who was taking an advanced position there in regard to the veil after her marriage in Jerusalem has followed the prevailing convention of the veil. Another gives the good news. She's giving the news of all these women who are leaving the hijab and praising them. So they believed it was a relic from the dark ages. It's a sign of oppression, an impediment to economic progress, and infringement on women's rights. Now, fast forward to our present decade, present, century, present time. We learned that this practice is not completely finished. It's still being forced. And this is why many times, when sometimes we get feedback from the women, they say, why is it that these movies and these scholars are so obsessed about one meter of cloth, that whether we cover our hair or not? How important is this to them? Why do they always talk about this? So I would answer back with another question. That if this is, you're asking why it's so important that we're talking about it, do not the parliaments of France and Belgium have other issues to discuss and vote on? They have to worry about the national budget. They have to worry about the defense of their country. They have to worry about balancing the budget, the, the condition of the economy, reducing unemployment, healthcare, education, all of these issues that the government has to resolve. But they are sitting together and voting on banning the hijab. Why? If it's not a big matter. Because it is a very big matter. The woman who is wearing hijab is not just a meter of cloth. This means that she is the one who is not following the trend. She is not a blind follower of the Western way of life. She is actually holding on to something much more deeper. She is a believer in Allah and His Rasul. She is not following the trend. She is going against the trend. The children she will raise will be strong believers in movements. They will not succumb to the environment and the pressures of the environment. They will not go with the flow, they will rather change the direction of the flow. Instead of flowing with the current, they will change the direction of the current. Not just flow against it, but change the direction of the whole current itself. That's why these women are a threat to the enemies of Islam. That's why they are being working so hard to eradicate. Look what happened. That's from a long time ago. You'll say, okay, that was in the colonial era. All right, now it's the post-colonial era we are living in. Where the direct colonialism is not there, indirect colonialism is there. Before it was directly, you know, the armies of the western countries were in the Muslim lands ruling it. Now the puppets are ruling. So look, in October 2000, it was learned that a French-run school in Alexandria, Egypt, banned hijab for its students. Then there was a lawsuit was brought against the school administration, the French embassy. It tried to shield them saying, we have diplomatic immunity. In January 2003, it was reported that the Jeddah prep and grammar school. This is so significant because Jeddah is what? Half an hour, 45 minutes away from the haram. 45 minutes away from the Kaaba al-Musharrafah and the Jeddah prep and grammar school operated by the British and Dutch embassies, it did not permit students to wear hijab. The girls who were wearing hijab were forced to remove it every morning before entering the school. This happened for a long time and no one even knew. It was only the refusal of one Egyptian girl, Lujain. The case of Lujain. What happened? She refused to take off her hijab. In subsequent refusal of the school to let her attend classes. They said, Lujain, you cannot come to class. Uh, this brought the issue to the surface. When contacted by an Arab news reporter, the school administrative secretary said the school policy was a total ban on all headscarves. Any girl wearing a headscarf will not be allowed to enter school, she said. So this is the practice. Of course, at the end, the resulting public outcry and pressure from the Saudi education ministry finally persuaded the school to change its policy. So we see this hatred, this, this real hatred for the hijab. 
So when they are speaking against oppression, we join them against, uh, in, the, in those calls, in that fight. But when they are fighting against hijab, then we have to realize that they are fighting against our deen. When they talk about violence committed against Muslims, then what is the statistics about violence against Muslims in the Western lands, in the non-Muslim lands? The Surgeon General's report is beatings by husbands and boyfriends are the leading cause of injuries to U.S. women. The leading cause of injuries to U.S. women is beatings by husbands and boyfriends in, in U.S. According to the FBI, a battering incident occurs every 18 seconds in the U.S. So this, this is the freedom. 30% um, of female homicide victims are killed by their own husbands and boyfriends. Three million such crimes occur every year in the United States. So, I mean, what is going on? 42% of women in the U.S. military are sexually assaulted by their own comrades, by their own colleagues. I recall one time in the doctor's office, uh, I, was, I picked up the Time magazine. This is some years back at the height of the U.S. invasion in Iraq and when the U.S. military was there. And there was a report about the U.S. military women in the military they are suffering different diseases and having pain because from Maghrib time till the next day Fajr uh, they do not use the bathroom because their own colleagues will rape them their own um, co-soldiers imagine if this is the crime the US soldiers are committing on their own fellow soldiers what they are committing on the poor civilians of Iraq and Afghanistan so this is something which is well known, it's in the normal, in the normal media. This is the situation out there. That's why even when you go to the hospital, last time I took my family to the hospital, and uh, then I, I went to the bathroom. In the bathroom on the wall, what does it say? This is the hotline. If you are being hurt by someone you love, this is in the labor and de delivery department for the women. So the women will be, are the primary patients there. So uh, they're saying, if you are being hurt by someone you love, then call this line. Or if you are afraid of someone you love, that means your husband or boyfriend, if he is torturing you. This is a U.S. Surgeon General's report. This is back from some time back on 20th October 1991. It says, more than a third of women slain in this country die at the hands of husbands or boyfriends and domestic violence is the single largest cause of injuries to women in the United States. The home is actually a more dangerous place for American women than city streets. So... Um, this is the, the condition of the people who want to um, bring freedom to the rest of the world. Anyway, going back to my original topic, we had talked about how in our deen, men and women are equal in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but they are not identical. They have different roles. And Islam has given different role to men and different role for women. Different responsibility to men, different responsibility to women. And anything that will um, endanger this distinction has been very severely punished, is considered a very serious punishable offense. Rasulullah used the, very, the strongest words of la'na. He said, لَعَنَ اللَّهُ الْمُتَشَبِّهِينَ بِالنِّسَاءِ 
والمتشبهات بالرجال that the curse of Allah descends on those males who adopt female dress female behavior and on those females who adopt male dress male behavior so this is the rahmatul alamin sallallahu alaihi wasallam speaking so why is that so any any even walking like a female dressing like a female acting like a female is absolutely haram for a male a male must remain a male and the woman she must remain a woman many things are haram for males for example gold is haram for males to wear silk 100% silk is haram for males to wear but it's permissible for women because she has a different nature Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made her uh, we, in our deen we recognize the feminine nature of women and that feminine nature is maintained and that is what adds the color to life and makes the life enjoyable for males and females both to maintain that distinction they support one another they're not supporting if they're the same how they're supporting each other they are complement one another they're not to compete against each other the feminist movement makes the worth of woman as compared to how much she can be like a man Every single thing a male is doing, they're forcing the woman to do, to do that. Just like in the military, for example, you have, you have the army, you have the navy, but then you have the marines. The marines are the toughest soldiers who go first, the first line of attack. They go and conquer the enemy land and plant the flag, and thereafter the army comes behind and consolidates that control. The army moves behind the marines. The marines are the first line. In the combat operations, in the marines now, they are bringing women into the training and they are putting them under so much torture these poor women who are undergoing training to become marines it was in the npr that i was listening to that it was a report that those women who are undergoing the training i cannot recall the exact number of pounds but some huge number 150 pounds for example of equipment the soldiers have to be holding in 150 200 pounds or more they have, to be, uh, they have to buckle it on their backs and be able to carry that equipment with them through the vigorous training. Not just going on a walk with the equipment, but undergoing severe training holding that equipment. And the men are going through and passing it, but the women, they are, their hips are breaking. Their bones are cracking. They're pushing them through that. Why does she, her worth is that if a male can be a Marine, I should be able to become a Marine. Why doesn't she be satisfied and realize that this male, no matter how powerful and strong he is, can he bear a child? Does he have a uterus? He doesn't want to have a uterus. He doesn't feel bad. He loves his children, but he doesn't say that, I cannot suckle my baby. Allah has given me a nipple too, but I don't have mammary glands. This is something which is so obvious, but it's become so difficult for people to understand. The women are trying so hard to become like men. When they don't have to, they have. Allah has given them a different role. Allah has given them things that the men do not have. So why are you trying so hard to become like a male? Anyway, moving forward. This is the system Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created in the entire alam. This binary existence. That they are pairs. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in all living beings, animate, humans, He has created male and females, animals, male and females, plant species as well. And then even among the inanimate, non-living material, 
if you go at the atomic level, we find the positive proton and the negative electron. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمِن كُلِّ شَيْءٍ خَلَقْنَا زَوْجَيْنِ And of everything we have created pairs. لَعَلَّكُمْ تَذَكَّرُونَ So you may remember. It's not one. Men and women are not one, they are pairs. You are not foes, adversaries or competitors. Rather you are help each other in attaining the relative perfection by complementing one another. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that when I created Adam alayhi salam, with all the blessings of Jannah, his life was incomplete. He was in Jannah for a time. Do you know? They did not come together. He came, there was a time gap. First it was Adam salam in Jannah alone. And despite not in the dunya, forget dunya, in Jannah, with all the blessings of Jannah, he felt an emptiness in his heart. His life was not complete. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created his partner for him. And with the companionship of Hawa, then he felt his life was complete. Subhanallah. So, what is the status if you look at now when this girl is born, if you go through her life? From the birth, what is the condition of a birth of a girl? The birth of a girl was a big disaster to the Jahili Arabs. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَإِذَا بُشِّرَ أَحَدُهُمْ بِالْأُنثَى When any one of the Arabs of Jahiliyyah were given the glad tidings that you have a daughter born to you, what happens? وَلَّ وَجْهُهُ مُسْوَدًّا His face becomes black in anger. وَهُوَ كَظِيمٌ And he is holding in his rage and anger. يَتَوَارَى مِنَ الْقَوْمِ He hides uh, from the people. مِنْ سُوءِ مَا بُشِّرَ بِهِ From the evil news that he was given. He was so, he is so embarrassed. And he's thinking, أَيُمْسِكُهُ عَلَى هُونٍ Should I keep this girl and bear the humiliation of having a daughter? أَمْ يَدُسُّهُ فِي التُّرَابِ Or should I bury her alive in the sand? أَلَا سَاءَ مَا يَحْكُمُونَ Evil indeed is what they judge. As they, uh, what they decide. And we know the story when one Sahabi radiallahu asked Rasulullah about Jahiliyyah, the, the crimes I committed, would they be forgiven? And he started crying and crying and weeping. And he remembered, he said, my wife was pregnant and I went on a journey. When I came back, I asked her what happened. And she said that unfortunately she had a miscarriage. She did not have, the, the child was lost. And then I accepted her report there's no reason to doubt her. And then as time passed, then her sister had a daughter. And that daughter she used to bring and spend time with the khala, with the maternal aunt. Then, um, but that girl, as she was growing, and I began to play with her, I used to like her, I used to love interacting with her, playing with her. And she also enjoyed my company and would play with me. And then the time progressed until a time came one day I was holding her in my lap, feeding her and laughing with her and enjoying her company. When my wife, she said that, do you love this girl? I said, yes. And she said that, I think perhaps now is the time to break my secret and tell you the reality. That when you had gone, I did deliver, but it was a girl. And I was afraid what you're going to do to her. So I just mentioned it's my sister's daughter. It is our daughter, your daughter. And how happy you would be to know that this is your own child. 
instead of becoming happy, as mentioned in the books of Tariq, um, that when a man would be informed by his wife that he has been given, that she, uh, he has been uh, granted a daughter, he would say, by Allah, she is not as blissful as a son. Her defense is crying and her care is but stealing. What does that mean? Her, her defense is crying, meaning if I'm going to be attacked by enemies, she cannot stand up and fight. And if I need financial help, she cannot earn. Her care is but stealing. She will only steal from her husband to provide. So he, his whole attitude changed. As Allah says, his face became black. He was hiding his anger. And what did he do? He, he immediately told his wife, prepare her to go out with me. I'm taking her now, right away. So she was crying. And she dressed her in the most beautiful clothes. Perhaps the beautiful clothes will make the father's heart become soft. And he took his daughter in his hand and walked out. Went out into the desert. And with a shovel started digging. And this daughter herself is saying, my, oh my father, you were working so hard, let me help you. She started helping him while he was digging. And she started wiping the sweat from his brow and from his forehead. And uh, this is the condition of the loving daughter. Yet, with no mercy, with hearts harder than stone and rocks, he threw her into that hole and buried her alive. This was the condition before Islam. That's why when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking about events at a colossal, universal level, about the heavens and the earth, and huge eruptions and destruction of the universe and the day of Qiyamah, When the sun will be rent asunder, the heavens will be destroyed, when the mountains will be turned into dust, and It's a very unique one. Bihar is ocean, sujirat is lighted ablaze. Oceans and water will be burning. How will that? Allah knows. وَإِذَا الْبِحَارُ سُجِّرَتْ وَإِذَا النُّفُوسُ زُوِّجَتْ وَإِذَا الْمَوْؤُودَةُ سُئِلَتْ In this huge dramatic events of the destruction of the universe, for on the day of Qiyamah, then Allah Ta'ala in that same line, He mentions this event. This is equally monstrous in the, in, as far as the crime is concerned. وَإِذَا الْمَوْؤُودَةُ سُئِلَتْ بِأَيِّ ذَنْبٍ قُتِلَتْ and that is the day when the girl who was buried alive will be asked, what is the crime you committed that led to your death? And so this changed. Changed drastically. Now the daughter was mentioned as a blessing of Allah, as a gift of Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the blessing of the daughter before mentioning the blessing of the son. He says, يَهَبُ لِمَنْ يَشَاءُ إِنَاثَ وَيَهَبُ لِمَنْ يَشَاءُ الذُّكُورُ he gives a blessing as Yahabu is a hiba. Hiba is a gift. He gives as a blessing to whom he wishes daughters, and he gives as a blessing to whom he wishes sons. Or he gives a blessing both mixes them, gives them sons and daughters. If he wishes, he keeps them barren with no sons nor daughters. He's Alimun Qadir. He has all knowledge and he can do whatever he wants. So in this culture, this machoistic culture where the, the male supremacy was at his, at his peak and they would degrade daughters and bury them alive, we see that Rasulullah was Allah decreed that he would have no male sons that would live. مَا كَانَ مُحَمَّدٌ أَبَا أَحَدٍ مِنْ رِجَالِكُمْ His son Qasim passed away, then Abdullah passed away, who was known as Tayyib bin Tahir, then his last son Ibrahim passed away. 
Muhammad is not the father of any male among you. He's the messenger of Allah, he's the Khatim al Who did he have? Zainab, then Ruqiyah, Umm Kulthum, and Fatima. So he showed with his own example how much he loved his daughters, how much tarbiyah he made of his daughters. And in that culture, when they're burying the daughters alive, he publicly mentioned his love. Fatima to bid'atu qalbi. Fatima is a part of my heart. Man adhani. Whoever causes Fatima any pain has caused me any pain. Rasulullah said, the one who makes tarbiyah of his daughter, trains his daughter, and uh, raises her three daughters, they will be with me in Jannah. Kahatain, like my finger and my forefinger, and he placed them together. His forefinger and his middle finger. And then someone said, Ya Rasulullah, what if someone has two daughters? He will also be with me. What if someone has one daughter? He, inshallah, will also be with me in Jannah, like these two fingers. So there are no specific rewards mentioned for sons. There are specific rewards mentioned for daughters. There are rewards for raising children, but there are specific rewards for raising daughters mentioned in the Quran, mentioned in the Sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And in one narration, it also goes further that if the father dies and she's, they're orphans, then the brother who sustains and protects his sisters, two or more, he will receive the same reward of the proximity to Rasulullah in Jannah. Likewise, there's a hadith of Rasulullah Abu Dawud that whoever had a female and did not feel insulted by his daughter and did not prefer his male children over her, Allah will admit him into Jannah. So, the father is taught in our deen to respect, the, to teach his daughter, make therapy of his daughter. And then when the time for her marriage comes, the father does not have the right to marry his daughter to a man that she hates or does not approve of. There are many hadiths in this regard. He should make mashwara and enforce in the Hanifi fiqh, the nikah is not even valid without the permission of the girl. Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu narrates, mentioned in Sahih Bukhari in Muslim, that a widow cannot marry unless she verbally gives her consent, and nor the virgin until she is asked permission. The Sahaba asked, Ya Rasulullah, how would she give her permission? What if she feels embarrassed and shy? This was such a culture where it would be embarrassing for a virgin girl to say, yes, I want to get married perhaps. Verbally say that. Even that would be difficult. In a genuine, legitimate discussion about marriage with her father, for her to say, yes, I'm pleased with this proposal. Believe it or not, in this age of immorality, indecency, and obscenities, it might be hard to fathom this concept, but it would have been perhaps difficult. It was not perhaps, it was difficult. That's why the relaxation is that if a virgin remains silent, then her silence will be taken as her giving permission. If someone says, wait, wait, wait a minute, maybe she doesn't like it, that's why she's silent. Yes, if she expresses no, she doesn't have to be silent, she doesn't have to be embarrassed to say no, right? So if she says no, then her no would be accepted as refusal. But if, she, if the proposal is given and she remained quiet, or dahikat, or she smiled, or bakat, or cried, this would mean yes, until she verbally said no. Uh, likewise, Aisha Siddiqa radiallahu anha asked the question, 
I asked the Messenger of Allah, a woman asked about their affairs, about the nikah. He said, yes. I, uh, she questioned, how is this so? The virgin, when she's asked, will feel shy and she will remain silent. Who, who said this? Aisha Siddiqa. So Rasulullah said, Sukutuha ijabuha. Her silence is her permission. This is Bukhari and Muslim as well. And we, we find when this was not taken in consideration, Rasulullah broke that marriage. Khansa bin Khaddam Ansari said her father got her married uh, and she hated this marriage she, though she was not a virgin and when she came and complained to Rasulullah Wasallam, Rasulullah Wasallam annulled that marriage. Likewise, uh, Ibn Abbas narrates this, that a virgin girl came to Rasulullah Wasallam and mentioned that her father got her married while she was unwilling, Rasulullah gave her the choice, gave her ikhtiyar. Sahih Muslim, there are so many hadiths in this regard. Aisha Siddiqah, another narration, a girl came to her saying, My father married me to his nephew to raise himself in status. Uh, and I'm unwilling. Then Aisha Siddiqah said, Wait till the Prophet comes, sit here. Then Rasulullah came. Then Rasulullah came and called the father. And he said, you have to give her the choice whether to continue this marriage or not. Then finally, when she came so far, she said, O Messenger of Allah, I approve what my father said, what he decided, but I just wanted to know if a woman had any word in the affair, if she had any choice. This is mentioned by Nasai. Um, even further, what's more interesting, of course, you take the permission from the daughter, get her input, but Rasulullah has narrated that you should seek the advice and counsel and take the mashwara of the mother of that girl. Uh, on the third of Ibn Umar, Rasulullah said, take the woman's permission about their daughters before you marry their daughter off. This is by Ahmad and Abu Dawood. So what did the commentators of hadith say? Why did Rasulullah said, take the permission from the wives before you marry, marry off their daughters? Because if the father is a dominating type of figure, perhaps the daughter would be afraid to express her real feelings. And she would be open with her mother. And she would say whether she's comfortable with this relationship or not. Another is that the mothers have a great role to play in the success or the failure of the marriage. If the mother is on board, then when the relationship, if, there's any, if, if there are any rocky times, she will support her daughter in that marriage and, and encourage her um, uh, to be patient and how to overcome those challenges and trying to secure the husband's, her, her, the daughter's husband, meaning her son-in-law's approval. But on the other hand, if the marriage was done without her involvement, then it's very easy for the mothers to rouse their daughters against their husbands. To instigate the daughter against the husband. So that's why it is better if the, if the mother is also approving of the marriage. So there are so many rights of, the, of, of, of daughters in Islam. Then when she becomes now wife, she's married to her husband. What is her position now? In our deen, marriage is something which is a means of gaining the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is a means of completing one's deen. It is not like the Christian belief that they would idealize the monastic life of Rahbaniyyah, of taking vows of celibacy as the monks and the nuns did. Rather, 
the completion of one's iman, completion of one's faith, the sunnah of the Anbiya is marriage. When some people, they took this three of Sahaba radiallahu anhum, they retired from worldly life and they devoted themselves to worship Allah and saying, they said that we will remain all night in ibadah, we will fast every day and we will not get married. Rasulullah expressed his anger and he said, Ana atqaakum lillah. I am the one who fears Allah the most from amongst you. And none of you can have more taqwa than me. Yet, asumu wa uftir. I fast and I break my fast. Anamu wa arqud. Aqumu wa arqud. I stay awake at night in ibadah and I also sleep. Wa atazawwajun nisa. And I do marry. And whoever turns away from my sunnah, man raghiba an sunnati falaysa minni, is not amongst me. In our deen, it mentions that a good wife is the best treasure man can have. Rasulullah said, Adunya kulluha mata'a. This dunya Allah has created for the benefit of man. The best gift is a righteous wife. She's considered the key to happiness. Rasulullah one time in one hadith asked Umar that shall I tell you the best a man can ever treasure? It is a good wife. If he looks at her, she gives him pleasure. If he asks her anything to do, she obeys him. And if he is away from her, she remains faithful to him. This is the greatest blessing for a man in this dunya after Iman and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Rasulullah said, Whoever is granted a good wife, he is helped to follow half of his deen is complete. Let him fear Allah in the second half. Rasulullah said, Four things. If granted to a person, he is granted the khayr dunya wal akhirah, the best of this dunya and the hereafter. Qalban shakira, a thankful heart. Lisanan dhakira, a tongue that remembers Allah. And badanan sabira, a body which can patiently endure misfortune. And a wife that does not make khayana, does not betray him. And so this was the status. Rasulullah said, Khiyarukum khiyarukum li nisa'ihi, the best amongst you is the best to his wife when I am the best to my and I am the best to my wife. Rasulullah despite being the messenger towards all creation, inni Rasulullah ilaykum jami'ah, having the responsibility, the guidance of all mankind. And having so many concerns would enter his home smiling. Rasulullah would converse with his wife, spend time with them, would talk to them, would even joke with them, and would come down to their level. We know the example of Rasulullah, he, he even raced, he took time to do a frivolous activity we would otherwise regard as racing. And then we see his, his, uh, his mazah, meaning how he joked. That when he allowed, of course, Aisha Siddiqah, he would allow, of course, he was being stronger than 40 men. He allowed her to win the race the first time. And then later when they had an opportunity, uh, they were alone, of course, within the privacy. He raced again and he beat her this time. And then he said, tilka bi tilka. See, tis, this one for that one. Tit for tat. You beat me last time, now I got you this time. This was how he joked with Aisha Siddiqah. Such examples of expressing the love that he would come and he would say, where did you bite from the meat so I can bite from the same place? Where did you drink from the cup so I can drink from the same place? And fulfilling the rights of the wife to the extent we see Abdullah bin Abbas who was standing in front of a mirror and combing himself and grooming himself. And he was asked, what are you doing? Oh, Hibr al-Ummah, oh, the great scholar of the Sahaba, oh, Ra'is al-Mufassirin, Imam of Tafsir, Abdullah bin Abbas, you are worried about how you look. And then he said, my niya is, I'm doing this to look good for my wife, just like I, I demand or I expect that she looks good for me. 
Subhanallah. So being considerate of even the desires of the wife that she would like and appreciate beauty in her husband, this is part of our deen taught to us. So just like the women are there to help the, the women, the wives are there to help the husbands control their gazes from haram, it is the responsibility of the husband to help control the wife's gaze from haram. To use a miswak, to keep themselves pure and smelling good, all of these are not limited to just in the beginning days of the marriage, but are responsibilities of the husbands throughout time, throughout the marriage. So, what are the responsibilities Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed on the husband with respect to his wife? Number one is the mahar. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, And give to the woman the mahar as a gift. This is not a price. That's why the word nahla means a gift. It's a gift to the wife at the time. Number two is her maintenance. It's the responsibility of the husband to maintain his wife. To, re- to provide food, to provide clothing, to provide a place to live, medical treatment, according to his conditions and his income. The wealthy man, based on the wealth he has, the poor, be, be, uh, to the level of the poverty he has. And bil ma'aruf, in an honorable manner. What does honorable manner mean? Means uh, whatever is conventional and understood by the people of faith and honor, up to that standard. Without extravagance and without being um, um, stingy. And then, third right is, وَعَاشِرُوهُنَّ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ Live with them honorably. What does it mean to live honorably with a wife? It includes all good manners, flexible attitude, sweet words, smiling face, pleasing playfulness. All of these are responsibilities, the commandment to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the men and how to treat their wives. Rasulullah sallallahu went so far that he used to help them in, home, in task at home. But at the same time, let us not forget, along with all the rights, there are responsibilities. So the women have responsibilities to their husbands as well. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, nisa. Allah has made the males as caretakers of the females. And why? This is the fadilah Allah has given men. Because it's spent of their wealth. So this is the system. There's a system of interdependence. The women, they need their husbands because they are the ones providing for them. And the husbands, they need their wives just like Adam salam needed Hawa and Jannah even. So this interdependence, the fact that men need women, women need men, will help them stick together during difficult times. But if this interdependence is removed and any one party believes they're independent of the other completely and I don't have any need for my partner, then there's no reason to stick through together during difficult times. And that's where the separations occur frequently. And this is what happened in Western society. In Western society as well, the woman had the primary role of raising the children. Motherhood was a, a profession which was honored. The architects of society, they are the ones who are raising the children. This was the situation. Until, if you study social history, you'll find that the great change occurred in World War II. In World War II, all the men went out to fight the World Wars, in which millions and millions of men died to fulfill the the greed of the capitalists who are in charge of these wars. And then there was a, sh- a more need to increase the production for the war machine to support the troops throughout the world. And the men were out fighting and dying. So because of a labor crisis, shortage of laborers, then this huge propaganda began for the first time in America itself that you need to be loyal to your country and patriotic 
or women leave the confines of the home and enter the workplace. So in huge numbers, for the first time, the women in this land, they also left their homes and entered the workplace. And the industrialists and the capitalists actually loved it because they were more docile workers, more submissive, and also following the orders. And they could also pay them less. They had a lower salary. This land of equality, so-called equality, the women were paid less than the men. And this, that's why they didn't let go. After the World War, they continued. And that's why we find the rate of divorce skyrocketed. Illegitimate children, women, children born out of wedlock, exponentially it increased after World War II. The whole society changed. Because the women were staying at home taking care of the children, and they had, the marriages were secure, and this whole system was a great upheaval took place. So this is the responsibility. Like when a child is born now, what does the Quran say? Like we studied in Usul Fiqh. Allah Ta'ala didn't use the word Ummahat here, He used the word Walidat. The, one, the woman who, who bore that child is the mother. Walidat. What should they do? They should suckle their babies. They should not say that, okay, why don't you get some implants and you start suckling the infant? It's their responsibility. Nowadays with the formula, when we have these marriage counseling, these, these, these are the cases we hear. That the husband says that I have work to do, I love my child, I'm earning to bring money for my children's education and for all of their expenses, for the rent, for the home, that, and the roof for my wife and children. But the wife is upset that, why you, you know, half the time I will get up and feed the baby, half the time you have to feed the baby. Right. You have to make the formula. Right. So this is in the Quran. وَالْوَالِدَاتُ the mother must suckle the baby. It's mentioned in the Quran. Very simple. Whether it hurts anyone's feelings or not, this is the Quran. What about the father? He's caught free, nothing. The father, but instead of saying Abun, father, he says Mawludi Lahu. The one for whom the child was begotten. To remind your father that the child was begotten for you and he will carry your name and the nasab goes to you and the lineage goes to you and he is your son. So don't, don't say that I don't have to do anything. The father for whom the child was begotten, he must provide the risk, he must provide the provision. That's why I'm saying there's so much confusion in our daughters and that's why they're having problems in their marriages. They're getting confused when they hear all the nonsense from the Western media. Then they don't know their role as a wife. And then they have troubles when they get married. The father's responsibility is to provide. Yes, if he can help out at the home, we talked about the akhlaq of Rasulullah One is the duty, one is the akhlaq. One is the responsibility, one is the character beyond that. So the akhlaqan, from a, he should help and he must and follow the sunnah of Rasulullah But the primary responsibility of the upbringing of the children is with the mother. Father and the mother, the sperm and the egg together create the child, but then, then the link of the child to the mother is greater. The child remains in the mother's womb for nine months, not in the father. Then the child suckled from the mother for up to two years, not from the father. So that link is there. It's a biologically provable scientific fact, observable fact that no one can deny. So the responsibility on the mother naturally is, is greater. So she has to awaken to that. Not consider it a burden, but consider it a responsibility. And by fulfilling that responsibility, she will get the reward of jihad, fi sabirillah. Nothing less than jihad, fi sabirillah. As it comes that the Sahabiyah came to Rasulullah and said, Ya Rasulullah, the men they go out in jihad, they gain shahada or they become 
or they gain the ghanima and the mal and they come back and successful, they gain so much high reward. What about us? He said, if you fulfill the responsibilities at home, you will receive the reward of the mujahid fi sabirillah. So, I mean, the discussion, I've gone through perhaps about half of what I was going to discuss. But if you go further, you see the, the mother, now she becomes a mother. We talked about daughter, we talked about wife, now she becomes a mother. Subhanallah, what's the right of the mother? If the, if the, if the, if the virtue of the husband or the rank of the husband is higher than the wife, then guess what? The rank of the mother is higher than the father. No one ever made that objection. But the rank of the mother is higher than the father. As it comes in several hadiths that the Sahaba, we know these hadiths, we narrate these to our children. That the Sahabi came and asked Rasulullah who do I, who has the greatest right upon me? Rasulullah said, the one who deserves the best character from you is your mother. Then second, who deserves the best ita'a from me? Your mother. Then who? Then your mother. Then who? Then your father. So the rank of the mother is greater than the father three times more. So how is that not fair? It is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who has given no husband, no father can go and strike against these ayat in these hadith and complain. Why is the rank of the mother greater than that rank of the father? I do so much. This Allah has given the rank. So the fathers must accept the fact that the rank of the mother is higher. And the wives must understand and accept the rank of the husband is greater. Because there has to be a head of the family. If there are two people traveling for a short period of time, Rasulullah said there has to be an Amir. If there is no Amir, no leader, then the Amir will be Shaitan. In this union of a family, that their life, their, you know, that's why the, and the wife is called Rafiqi Hayat. One is Rafiqi Safar, Rafiq in the journey, but one is Rafiqul Hayat, your partner in life, life partner. So in this journey of life together, there has to be an Amir. And the reality is that Allah has made the man the Amir. So he is the head of the household, but the wife is the heart of the household. You need the head and you need the heart. Then the, 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 that will function properly. So the heart has her, the role, but the head has its role. The, if the man is the, is the head of the household, does not mean he must become a heart-fisted dictator. Does not mean he should oppress his wife and children. It means that he should take their mashwara, take uh, advice from them, take consult with them like Rasulullah consulted with his wives, and then make the decision in the correct manner. But if the decision is made in such a way that does, the wife doesn't like, if it is within the bounds of Sharia, then she has to accept that. And she has to understand this is the order of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that I do accept that. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made it easy for her. That he, with respect to for example, who would you imagine has the greatest rights on this woman? Her own parents. But Imagine if it were, how the heart of the woman would be split. If her father and mother is saying something, her husband is saying something, and she has to fulfill her parents' request and her husband's request, and there's a clash. Her parents are saying, you have to live in this city, and her husband is saying, my job is in another city, and we have to move there. What should the woman do? Will, does, she, does she have to feel guilty that she is disobeying her father and her mother? The one that has the greatest right upon her, the one who raised her up and brought her up and trained her and educated her, she has to have absolutely no guilt in disobeying that order. Rather, the parents who are forcing their daughter to disobey the husband would be guilty of, of forcing their daughter into a, into a position of feeling bad. It made it simple that she has to follow the lead of her husband and then she will not be guilty. She has no responsibility. She has no financial responsibility. 
Sometimes this happens that a woman is married into a richer family and her parents are uh, poor. And then she feels guilty. She does not have to feel guilty. She can make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. She should, if she has the money, she should... And if the husband can help, there's no sin in helping. It's an re- act of reward. But if he just decides not to help, then she, wouldn't, she wouldn't, does not have to feel guilty because that is not her responsibility. Allah has not put a burden on her more than she can bear. It made it easy for her. When, before she was married, it, uh, the, then she was living with her parents and her, that khidmah was followed on her, but afterward it's not followed on her. You know, the, the other side, there's balance too. It's not permitted for the husband to not allow the parents to see their daughter. It's haram for the husband to prohibit the parents from visiting the daughter. And there are limits that he should allow his wife to go visit the parents, etc., etc. But at the same time, at times of conflict, then what happens is that there has to be one, one, one way to move forward. And that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made the husband as the head of the household. So we have to understand the rights as well as responsibilities. There are many, many talks within the Muslim circles about the rights of women. Very rarely we talk about the responsibilities of women. We have to make sure we talk about both. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make it easy for us to not become a victim of this propaganda that Islam is against women. And at the end of the day, we can talk about I had you know, many things planned. Perhaps in the next section, we have a, in the second session where we can talk about specific uh, objections that the progressives have against Islamic rulings with respect to miras and inheritance, with respect to shahada, testimony in a court of law, what is the status of men versus women, and with respect to the laws of divorce. We had a 16-week sessions, 16 sessions of one hour each on the fiqh of marriage and divorce, in which it, after you study the whole thing, then you realize uh, the beauty of the Islamic system. The Catholic faith is so uh, idealistic but far from realistic in that it is prohibited to get divorced at all. In our deen, there are certain rules for marriage and to avoid divorce. But at the end, if it is required, then there, it is permissible. It is the most undesirable of that which is permissible. Certain rules that are there and how that law is beautiful. But whether we go into the details or not, and whether those details convince us or not, at the end of the line, and I'll conclude as it's getting late for Isha, is that we have to realize and make this one decision that do we believe in Allah or not? Do we believe in the Quran or not? Do we believe in the Sunnah or not? So that should be the main point we have to understand. The woman in particular in this uh, discussion tonight. And once we say that theologically we are sound, we believe in Allah and we believe that He is not a zalim, He is not doing zulm on women and Rasulullah is not there to, to zulm on women. He was a rahmah lil'alameen. Then some of the injunctions we might understand, great. Some of the injunctions we may not understand. The orders of Rasulullah we might agree with. Some of the orders of Rasulullah we may not agree with. Some we see the wisdom, some we may not see the wisdom. But what, what does Islam mean? At the end of the day, Islam means submission. Submission means that you submit. And submission itself has the connotation that uh, there might be certain things which are unpalatable, undesirable, and might seem difficult to you. But because you recognize Allah as your Lord and Rasul as the messenger of that Lord, you submit to that. So that is what is required. At least we have that clarity that our moral system, our ethical system is based upon what? Divine revelation. Which is universal, can never change. Whereas the Western world and these progressives and the foreigners of the feminist movement and the liberation movement, what is the foundation they have for their ethics and their morals? It is fallible human beings and philosophers, their ideas. And their ideas change with time and place. 
So much drastic change occurs. Some of my friends who are psychiatrists, they told me that the American Society of Psychiatry just a few decades ago got together in their annual convention and declared that homosexuality is not a mental illness. Up to then it was considered a mental disorder. So look how far we have progressed. Far progressed or regressed rather. That that which was considered a, a sickness. The Lut is saying, how dare you come up with such a, an act an immoral act that no one has ever done before you. You fulfill your shahawat and your lust with your same gender. You have crossed all the limits of transgression. So now speaking out against this is a crime in this day in society. And this is something which is so actively promoted. So what happened? This, this, this system, they have, the basis of their morals are whatever they come up with. And those morals change. Over time, our morals, our morality, what we consider ethical, unethical, do not change. The Majusis, they used to say logically and ethically, they would say that why should I give my sister to another man in marriage when he could oppress her and be wrong to her and do dhulm on her? The safest way to protect the woman is that a male marries his own sister. So logically, you cannot argue with that. But we know it's haram. حُرِّمَتَ عَلَيْكُمْ أُمَّهَاتُكُمْ وَبَنَاتُكُمْ وَأَخَوَاتُكُمْ وَعَمَّاتُكُمْ The Qur'an very clearly tells us, look, it's haram for you. You cannot marry your mothers, you cannot marry your daughters, you cannot marry your sisters, so and so are haram for you. These are the mahram relations. So we have a very, very clear understanding what is right, what is wrong. Our right and wrong is clear. That's why the title, one of the names of the Qur'an is Al-Furqan. شَهْرُ رَمَضَانَ الَّذِي أُنْتِلَ فِيهِ الْقُرْآنُ Furqan. It's a Furqan. The Furqan is a criterion for all times. And the Quran does not need to be updated because it never gets outdated. The Quran does not need to be updated. Our software needs to be updated. Our hardware needs to be updated also. But the Quran does not need to be updated because it never gets outdated. It's eternally relevant word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we should be confident. My take-home message at the end of all of this discussion is, the sisters in particular, as they are the primary addresses tonight, those who are now listening here, those who are listening at home, and those who will listen later to the recording, is that you have to have absolute confidence and trust in who? Don't trust me, don't trust men, don't trust anyone. Trust Allah. That Allah and His Rasul wasallam are not there to oppress you, no matter what other people are going to try to poison your minds. Rather, your success Individually, the success of your children, your daughters, your sons, your husbands, your fathers, your brothers, success of family, success of community, success of the entire ummah lies in following the complete deen. Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu udkhuru fi silmi kafa. With respect to ibadat, with respect to mu'amalat, with respect to mu'ashara, with respect to akhlaq. And our social system is the best system. Not okay, not good, not great. It is the best. Not only the best, it's the only system set by the Creator Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala which is viable which can lead to success in any other system of life, no matter how apparently attractive it might seem, will lead to failure and destruction as we are observing around us today. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us, open our eyes and grant us a true understanding so that we can protect ourselves and our progeny and keep steadfast on the straight path. Wa da'wana alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.